Hello, and welcome to Working It. I'm Isabel Berwick. The Financial Times and Schroeder's Business Book of the Year Award is one of the most prestigious awards for business writing, if not the most prestigious, anywhere in the world. Winning entries have covered all sorts of subjects. The spectacular collapse of the blood-testing startup Theranos, how biased data reinforces gender discrimination, and how to invest through financial crises. The winner of this year's competition has just been announced at a glitzy awards ceremony in London. I spoke to the winning author, as well as some of the other shortlisted writers, at the event, and you'll hear those interviews in just a few minutes. Before that, I'm going to find out how the winner is actually chosen. Entries are quite varied, so how do the judges decide who wins? And do those discussions ever get a bit heated? To find out, I spoke to Rula Halaf, the editor of the Financial Times and chair of the judging panel, and to Andrew Hill, the FT's senior business writer, who has been in charge of running the prize since it was first awarded in 2005. I started by asking Rula about her favourite part of the process. Well, clearly the most interesting part is reading, reading the books. It does take uh, most of my summer, but it keeps me upon all the business ideas and the business books of the year. So I find that uh, very rewarding. The other thing is, of course, the discussion. I'm not in a book club. And so this is my book club. This is the time when I get to talk about books with, you know, people who are as as interested in, in the topics. And it can get quite competitive as well during the discussion. So... That's a lot of fun. Do you have to resolve differences? Is that your role? I know you can't reveal secrets, but... It can get spicy. Uh, I see my role as steering the discussion to where I think you can find consensus. If there are big differences, then you have a, a second round. And before the second round of voting, you'll discuss. And the judge who is uh, most passionate about a book gets to try to convince the others. Uh, so the art of uh, persuasion is um, very much at play. Let's hear from one of the authors the judges tussled over. I am Amy Edmondson, and I'm a professor at Harvard Business School. What is your book about? Can you sell it in a sentence? My book is about failure and why we think about failure the wrong way and how to think about it in a healthier, more productive, more effective for business kind of way. And why did you decide to write your book now? Because even though we've been talking about this for a long time, people, and I mean senior executives all the way up and down, are still confused about failure. They still are either falling into the camp, fail fast, fail often, or they're saying, I'm sorry, failure is not an option. Everything must go well. And failing to realize that there are different kinds of failure and context in which each is most appropriate. And how has it resonated with readers? Have you had a lot of feedback? I have had so much feedback and it is deeply gratifying. People are saying that it has really helped things fall into place for them. It's helped them see their lives and their jobs and their leadership roles in new ways. So it's been a thrill. Amy, thank you so much and good luck tonight. Thank you. And Andrew, is there a template for a great business book or is it more of a kind of gut, I know it when I see it kind of thing? So I'd say no, there isn't really a template. It is a bit more know it when you see it. I mean, I think all the judges like 
a, a good read. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And the fact that we have in the rules that it has to be compelling and enjoyable is important. Rula, how do you, what's your vision of a great business book? I think the number one requirement is that it has to be well written. And I think sometimes we get business books where the ideas are compelling, but it is not well written. This is a book award at the end of the day. So, you know, that is my number one requirement. I think the the second is that there has to be a compelling narrative, which doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be an investigation or that it has to be the, the story of a person, a biography. But uh, whatever ideas you are presenting, they have to have some kind of narrative. They need to be around one idea, around one character or a group of people. And I think the best business books include stories of people. Like the best business journalism. Absolutely. And when you were judging this year, were there themes that emerged? I think the new theme this year, which I hadn't seen in previous years, is minerals and materials. Two of the shortlisted titles were about natural resources. Let's hear from their authors. So my name's Ed Conway. My day job is I cover economics uh, and data for Sky News, uh, and I write occasional stuff on the side. This is the story of the world from a perspective that might seem very unfamiliar, but once you read it, I think it'll change the way you look at the world forever. And why did you decide to write it, and why now? Personally, because there was just so much I didn't understand about how the world really worked. And this was, a, in, in, it started off almost as a form of therapy, trying to understand this. Uh, but then as I kind of went on with it, I realised it's so relevant for all sorts of themes, supply chains, the energy transition. And just fundamentally, if we don't understand where we're, where the, you know, what the world is like now, how can we understand what we want it to be like in the future? Here's the author of Cobalt Red, How the Blood of the Congo Powers Our Lives. Siddharth Kara. My book is about the truth of the working conditions of people who mine cobalt that's used in all the rechargeable devices and electric vehicles around the world, as told through their testimonies. Um, they work in hazardous, degrading, uh, highly toxic and injurious conditions, and Cobalt Red tells their story. And what sort of feedback have you had from readers? I can't believe this is happening. That's the first sentence of thousands of emails I've received. I had no idea. People have been really shocked to learn what goes into their smartphone battery or their laptop battery or their electric vehicle battery. And I think also there's a sense of outrage that they've been made participants in it, uh, unwitting participants in these human rights and, and environmental violations. Has there been any change since you wrote the book? Nothing big yet, but I sense it. I can feel change happening. And... In the history of human rights, there's always a process. The first is raising awareness of some horror. And as the world learns, there's always a community of conscience that gets activated and will not stop until things are set right. Perhaps the biggest theme of 2023 has been AI. Here's what Mustafa Suleiman had to say about his book on the subject, The Coming Wave. I've tried to predict what is likely to happen with AI and synthetic biology over the next 10 years and be very specific about what I think the consequences are for culture, society, and politics more generally. And I wrote it because I wanted to go on record with some very clearly falsifiable claims 
about how I think the future might unfold and what we should do about it. Now felt like the perfect time to try to encapsulate where we are and say something about where we're headed. And what have you heard from readers? What's the feedback been like? Well, overall, I think the reaction's been really positive. I think people appreciate somebody in my position as someone who's been creating AI for almost 15 years now, having the courage to talk about the potential downsides as clearly as we talk about the potential upsides. So I think often the debate focuses too much on the obvious good that AI will do and probably not enough about the risks that we as yet don't really know how to mitigate. What was it like writing a book on AI when things were changing almost weekly? Well, it's a great question. That was full of rewrites and constant updates. And so we actually went back through the text just days before it went to press in order to keep it fresh and up to date. Um, so it was fun and exhilarating, if nothing else. Does the world actually need more business books, Rula? I mean, I've got about 100 on my desk. I think yes, a certain kind of, of business books. The fact that we can come up with, you know, 15 books and then for the long list, five or six books for the short list tells me that, yes, there is a need for, for business books. And both on the narrative investigative side and uh, on the management side. Keep going, guys. <laughs> Andrew, how do you feel about business books? I'm in two minds. I mean, there are every year there's 500 or more entries. 400 of those probably you can discard pretty swiftly. I'd be happy without those business books in the world necessarily. Um, but there's 100, all of which add something. So I think you probably need the surplus ones in order to be able to get the cream on the top. And that's what I hope we're picking. So who did come out on top? It was the author of Right Kind of Wrong, Amy Edmondson. She sat down with Andrew Hill to discuss her prize-winning book. So, Amy, thank you for joining us in the studio today. Thank you for having me. And congratulations on winning the uh, FT and Schroeder's Business Book of the Year Award, a success for a book about <laughs> failure. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled. Talk us through a little bit the... The themes of the book, it's a, it presents a very useful taxonomy, if you like, of, of failure and failures, which, as you point out, aren't all the same. Yes, I think the first job of the book is to clarify the different types of failure so that we can be clear-headed about the ones that we should truly celebrate and try to have more of and the ones we should work hard to prevent. So the three types of failure that I identify are basic failures, which are single cause failures, usually due to human error. Complex failures, which are the multi-cause failures, where many factors line up in just the wrong way to produce a failure, where any one of the factors on its own would not have led to the bad outcome. Neither of those are celebratory. Neither of those are, are um, good news. They are both theoretically and often practically preventable. The third kind of failure right kind of wrong is intelligent failure. And those are the thoughtful forays into new territory that nonetheless didn't work out as we had hoped. So intelligent failures are the ones where they are in pursuit of a goal. They're in new territory. There's literally no way to look up the answer on the internet. And 
they're driven by a hypothesis. You've done, you've done your homework. You have good reason to believe what you're about to try, the risk you're about to take, might work. And they're as small as possible. They're no bigger than they have to be to get the knowledge that you need. So another way to say that is that intelligent failures are the results, the undesired results, of smart experiments. And so this is science, essentially. It is. In fact, scientists do intelligent failure for a living. They know, they know that's what they've signed up for. They know that more of their experiments, if they're on the leading edge of their field, will fail than succeed. And yet they get up in the morning and go to work anyway. Like why? Well, could say because of the small percent that succeed are so exciting. And because they understand that as pioneers in new territory seeking to discover new things, there's no way around the reality of failure some portion of the time. Clearly, we're often being urged by entrepreneurs and innovators to embrace failure and celebrate failure. And what is it that that irritates you, if it does irritate you, about that? What irritates me is that it's it's almost necessarily a mixed message because people people know no failure is not good. Everything in our culture says success is good, failure is bad. So when people are glibly saying fail fast, fail often, failure party, celebrate failure. What that does is make people think, okay, we're not really being truthful with each other. And it's sloppy. It's, it's, it's sort of acting as if that's good advice across the board. When in fact, that's good advice for entrepreneurs, again, assuming they're thinking through what they're trying as carefully as possible, for scientists, for inventors. It's not good advice for air traffic controllers. Right. It's not good advice for surgeons. And it's not good advice for anyone who hasn't thought carefully about the meaning of context and how different contexts call for different behaviors, especially with respect to risk-taking. Right, right. One thing that occurred to me, I suppose, is, you know, obviously lots of successful people don't mind talking about the failures and what they've learned from them. And you you quote a lot of them in the book, but ultimately they are success yes. stories. And that's your one of your points. But I wonder to what degree you're troubled by the people who failed and disappeared. <laughs> I just wonder whether there's a missing piece here of people who failed no. and then were no longer available. Well, it's true. And I think there is a missing piece. And, and I mean, I, I think I need to back up and say, you know, ultimately, this is a book about success. Yeah. And it's about the role of failure in success, which doesn't mean that Failure is a guarantee of success, as you as you're pointing out with this example. My hope is that we can have honest conversations about it. And the aspiration is to help people have smarter failures so that the beeline towards successes is clearer to them and 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 to others. and And there will always be counterexamples, and there will always be people whose failures were so crippling that they, could never move beyond them. But I think we'll find very few extraordinarily successful people who didn't have the failures. Amy Edmondson, thank you very much for joining me. What a pleasure. Thanks to Rula Halaf, Andrew Hill and Amy Edmondson for this episode. Congratulations to her and to all the shortlisted authors. If you want to hear more about Amy's winning book, do listen back to my interview with her. There's a link to that episode in the show notes. This episode of Working It was produced by Misha Frankel-Duval 
and mixed by Simon Panay. The executive editor was Manuela Saragossa and Cheryl Brumley is the FT's global head of audio. Thanks for listening.